everybody, and welcome to the Shenanacast. This is episode. Should've looked it up. Eight? I think it's eight. eight I think right. maybe it's eight. Because we're so good at this. I don't know. Hang we're on. Super pro. Quick, quick checking. Quick check. Quick check. Exactly. This is Shenanacast episode nine. Uh-huh. We totally didn't say eight. We said nine. We're it's, so good at this. It's it's Shenanacast episode nine, everybody. Uh, and I am your host, Saku, also known as John, and with me is. Catacorus, also known as William. And Units, also known as the guy who never says his name and refers to himself as some other adjective. Who t- couldn't think of an adjective quick enough today. So, yep. also known as Austin. Um, and today we are talking about storytelling. Uh, it was kind of sort of interesting because the, the, the initial reason why we wanted to do a podcast was to talk about storytelling. And then it sort of evolved from there. Um because all of us are storytellers in, in, in different ways and tell different stories. But I, sort of like, I think part of being actors and part of being theater people and part of being gamers is a very, a very you know, sort of appreciation of storytelling in a variety of ways. I like to tell stories from a more, more personal narrative. Um, you tend to, from what I've experienced, you tend to tell more broader spectrum stories. Uh, yes, but I also prefer to have an overarching story and incorporate the elements of the people within it yeah. into the story. But it is a very large world in which yeah. the people are engulfed in a massive universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's more of a, you, you, you have a broader perspective on your storytelling, where I have a more narrow perspective on yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, like, I like to basically immerse a small party into a large world. Yeah. And then... Austin just likes to make big shit and throw it at us. <laughs> I like to do terrible things to people. <laughs> the uh, the two guys, one camera starring him as the GM are not fake. <laughs> Anyways. It's um, not very. Not, I, I'd give the TPK. Yeah, too. Got yeah. really, really close. Really close. But my dad was still standing at the end of the fight. It's true. I had gone up and down and up and, and down. down. I get knocked down. down and I get up again. again. Anyways, uh, so yeah, we, 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 we tell stories in, in a variety of different ways, and, and it comes across. And, and me, in particular, being a, a, a film student, I, I enjoy looking at how people tell stories and sort of breaking down the, the, the what are their angles, what are their motifs, what are their Austin Jangling keys. Um, Sorry, I fidget. what I do. <laughs> what are their, you know, what, what are their, what are the, like one of the things that I'm watching, um, recently watched Mad Max Fury Road. And I really love how Max is not the central character of, really of his own movie. That is, a, that is a really good movie. It's a really good movie, and, and I, I just love that Max is not the central character like, of his like, own movie. I feel movie. like Mad Max as a title is a bit of a misnomer because it's not about Max. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's, it's he, how you sell the movie. Yeah. He's a he's a force. Mm-hmm. He's a force in the movie. He's a humanoid typhoon. Yeah, and I you know I I sort of like unique and interesting ways of telling the same story because. While while there are only so many stories in the world, you can tell those stories from any num- from as many perspectives as there are people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I really like. And but yeah, so the first how groundbreaking would it be to have a truly new story for once? We wouldn't be able to recognize it because we would process it through our own filters of experience, <laughs> so it wouldn't seem original even if it was. Um, that's that's part of the problem is that we we process everything by our via our own experiences. So it wouldn't seem new if it was truly new. We wouldn't be able to understand it. Yeah, it's like what is going on? I don't 
Absolutely I don't understand. Have. Which is part of why which is part of why it's so difficult for people to understand stories from different cultures. Like it, it's very difficult for a large majority of Americans to understand stories told from a Japanese perspective because the cultures are very different. And that's that's what happens. When you don't have experiences to draw on, when you don't have that knowledge to, to filter it through, you just get confused. Or, or there are times when characters do things and I'm like, why why are you doing why, why are you going through with this? This yeah. is a terrible plan. It, it's it's because their sense of honor and morality and ethics are on a completely Eastern and Western philosophy are completely different, especially if it's, you know, like a Renaissance period. Yeah. And, you know, it also leads to it also leads to when 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 people do actions in video games uh, that seem alien to you. Uh, it's because that person, either that player or the writer of that character, if it's an NPC, are coming at it from a different background and a different perspective. And so it seems stupid, but in the character, in that character's mind, it's the right thing to do, or it's the correct thing to do. Um, and it leads to very interesting sort of conflicts with, with the person viewing the story and the person making the story. And going into, actually taking that step into stories and video gaming, which is our first topic for, the, for, for today... I particularly love characterization um, because I tend to tell stories on a more narrow focus. I tend to look at the characters and actually study the, the the people in the story, as opposed to the world around the world at large. Which is why I don't really like uh, sort of background storytelling um, in in games. I mean, I don't mind them, but I don't like them as much as I like like JRPGs, which is where it's all about the characters. Um, because I'm more interested in a person's experience in that world than the world presented by itself. Um, because that person then gives me a sort of a lens with which to view the events and a, a way to sort of categorize and, and characterize everything else that's happening around them. And this happens, you know, and characterization is something that happens across the board, and sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's really bad, and sometimes it's both in the same game. Uh, a very recent, you know, to my experience, uh, uh, example of this is actually me. I'm currently streaming the Bureau XCOM, XCOM Declassified, and the main character is very much a Steve. He's a he's a middle aged white man used to work for CIA, clean shaven, wearing a vest and tie and pants. And his Steve wife was generically gruff. And his and his wife and child are dead. Steve is just generic. Steve, Steve can we take it just a second to talk about? Steve and okay because we're talking about characterization and Steve is a really important element and I, I feel like the idea behind Steve is that everybody wants to create someone that is relatable and so they go for what is the majority what is the majority yeah. what is the majority so Steve is a is actually a term coined by Alex Stacy at least I first heard it from Alex Stacy of Loading Any Run I've, um, I've seen it other places I don't I think it's one of those small things that he made big may may have been but. Um, and and basically, it, it's it is the generic proto man. It is uh, when you look at when you look at the broad spectrum of gamers, you think, well, you know, mid to late twenties, maybe early thirties, as we're getting older, um, white or young teenagers male. who want to be yeah, or late want 20s to be late twenties, early thirties, white male can be gruff. Can be not like the the facial hair is sort of an add on add off. Um, typically, if you look at if you know, we list a few, anybody Nolan North voices uh, <laughs> for the most part, almost anybody Steve Bloom voices 
in a video game, but for the most part. Th- th- there's a uh, couple things that really make Steve Steve, and one, one of the big things, I think, is he has no ties to anybody. Because if Steve's ha- Steve yeah. has ties, you are... Suddenly have a, you suddenly have a different character. You suddenly have an emotion. Yeah, and, and the whole idea of Steve is that you are supposed to be able to do whatever you want with Steve. He's supposed to be a blank slate. So they're like, we'd give him no characterization, no personality, yeah. no emotion in his voice acting, because you're supposed to imagine you're him. Which typically means gruff, antisocial, white male, with or without beard, and whose family is either dead or missing. But never a long beard. Never a long beard. No, never never a really long beard. It's either 5 o'clock shadow or nothing. Um, and like I said, his family is Because either... a long beard implies some kind of wisdom. <laughs> his, his, his family is either dead or missing. So, William Carter, Agent William Carter, which is a very generic American name, um, is a mid-30s special agent for the CIA, formerly special agent for the CIA, who can't be trusted because he doesn't play by the rules. So he's Dirty Harry. But, and, and the reason he doesn't play by the rules is because he was out on a mission for the CIA, and his home got lit on fire and his wife and child burnt to death. For reasons? So he went off the handle. Uh, uh, still haven't explained why or how his it was aliens. family died. It was this aliens. is before Aliens. This is before Aliens, sir. But, but once again, we have a character who used to play by the rules and now he doesn't. So he, yeah. can, he, he can go either way. And so he's, he's very... He's a, he's a true neutral. Generic. Like, if you, you, you throw, a dart at a, throw a dart at a movie po- at a collection of movie posters or a collection of video games... And you probably and you hit a Steve. Probably hit a Steve. Um... And so that's what we mean by Steve. Anyways, uh, and he is, you know, this very bland character. I'm like, okay, I can get behind that. I can, whatever, it's it's a, it's a, it's a action game, whatever. Then we go to Georgia, specifically southern Georgia. And we, we, we are rescuing a, a scientist who's Australian for some reason. Um, and... Australian, mate. Yes, Australian. Um... And we go and we find some survivors. And the first person we talk to sounds like a normal person. And he's like, oh, well, we, 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 we sort of... These aliens started attacking. I couldn't think of a safer place than a bank vault, so we just sort of shut ourselves up in this bank vault. It's like, okay, that seems fine. Then I start... And then I turn to leave. And I hear, y'all think they're going to help us, Ingrid? No, I don't think they're going... I think they're going to go out there and it, it just sort of devolved into the hills have eyes. Like, all of a sudden, except for the one character that we directly talked to, every other NPC had a stereotypical hillbilly, hick, redneck voice. Even the women. And it's like, you, that is lazy characterization. Quick note, we're all from Georgia. Well, he's not. He's not. I'm not. Both of us. We are. I am a native Georgian. This is what a native Georgian sounds like. Uh, we're, well, we're, we're from the Atlanta suburbs, though, which is a little bit less eh? southern-sounding. You've met my father. To be I fair, have met your father. our father is very southern-sounding. Not this southern-sounding, though. Not yet. No, um, no. The, not... They, there's, here, 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 you do a southern accent, William, and I'll do a southern accent. Just, just a regular southern drawl, just kind of extended voice. You just kind of drag out some of your syllables. Whereas he is a northern trying to do a southern accent, and I do terrible... But it's exactly what them rednecks and them video games think what southern people sound like. I promise I ain't never meet someone sound like this. Exactly. <laughs> um, so all of the southerners, all the Georgians in this game sounded like that. And 
it's it's lazy. That's the big that's the biggest problem that I have with it. Is it's using an accent as shorthand for a character's entire backstory. Well, and I, I feel like they do the same thing with um, with race because we played that game, uh, the really bad David Cage game. David Cage. Uh, you're talking about Fahrenheit. We played Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> that, that's a book. Was... No, that, that's the Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 sorry. is a good book. That's all right. No, we're this is Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit Indigo Prophecy. Indigo Prophecy. There was the black guy, and his character was the black guy. Yo, man, we're gonna get our groove on and listen to some disco music. Like, yeah, it was. It was. He was. He was a. He was a disco guy in New York. Like, in modern I, New York, <laughs> I'm black. I play the black guy. I'm the only black character who's in the plot. I'm the only piece of dark chocolate in this work. And Is that actually what he sounds like? Yeah, I mean, yes, that's exactly what he sounds like, and he has referred to himself as dark chocolate oh in the game. God. Um, and it's, oh, God. And it's just... It, it's, a, it's a shorthand people do. It's like, people know the stereotypes associated with the race. An, he had an afro. But people know the stereotypes, and it's like, <laughs> we can tell the entire story of this character... By just following racial stereotypes, and people know everything about him. And it's like I said, it's lazy. It's it's the ultimate in lazy, and it's disingenuous. It really like that the the bit with the Georgians irritates me a lot because I run into that a lot. I get you know people who aren't native to Georgia are always surprised when you find somebody born in Georgia who doesn't sound like a hick. Um, Which, by the way, Georgia is not a bayou. Yeah, it's like we we're, we're not we're not Louisiana. Not playing. <laughs> um, I'm playing. That's a, that's southern racism right there. Where we're racist against other southern states. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> Everyone picks on Alabama and Louisiana. Anyways, and Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even talk about Missouri. But um, but but yeah, it's 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 really lazy shorthand, and I hate that. Especially when there are lots of games that actually go through the time to characterize their minor NPCs and their major characters very well. Uh, There's there 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 is a place for it, and I want I want to find out if you can place this quote. Okay. Sometimes comedy isn't about being nice. Sometimes it's a way for us to air out the ugly things people think. Nope, can't place it. Joker, Mass Effect. Oh yeah, no, I, I missed. I, I did. That was, that I was one of his that. conversations between him and Edie. He was oh, yeah? he was trying to introduce Edie to comedy oh, to okay. jokes. That's why. And it's like this is this is the place for it. The place for stereotypes is to make people realize how stupid they are. It's true. Not to use them as shorthand. Yeah. Which is what a lot of, uh, you know, is, is what happens when, you, when, you, when you're lazy with your characterization. You use them as shorthand. And it becomes offensive to some people, irritating to others. And just plain stupid and not entertaining. Like, at the very least, it's just not entertaining. Well, and, and another part about that is you've got the juxtaposition of all the hick NP, uh, side characters and then the important character, yeah, flat sound, accent. Sounds, he, he, had a, he had a southern accent, but it was a more muted southern accent. It was more like mine. Yeah. Or it, was, it was a few of the words. Like, with me, you can tell I have a southern accent because the way I say the word accent, I turn, accent. The, I turn the E and T into an I and T, just instinctively. And you can tell my northern accent when I say sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... It, like I said, it's 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 lazy. It's boring. It's not entertaining. That's the biggest problem that I have with it. Is this because you're inter- you're reintroducing a stereotype that we already know? So it's not anything new. It's not anything fresh. It's not a new take on an old thing. I really want a game that gets all when, when like, if it's a game in the U.S. I want them to get all their background characters from the place where the background is supposed to you be. Know? 
and actu- get all your Georgians from Georgia. Actual Georgians, not the not the fifteen hillbillies in the one rural town in southeastern Georgia. The actual actual everyday Georgians, because that's another thing that people do. Like the news does it all the time, where when they whenever there's a disaster, they find the most hillbilly redneck looking person they could possibly find from the town over. <laughs> you know. Uh, but there are good examples of characterization. Mass Effect, going back to that, Joker is a perfect example of characterization that's well done. When we first talk to him, he's so... When we first talk to him, the first thing he assumes is that we're checking up on him because of his illness. Because we want to make sure that he can fly the plane. We want to make sure that he can fly the ship right. And so he just sort of goes off. He snaps at Commander Shepard about how he's perfectly fit to find, there's no need to worry about him, blah, 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 blah. And, and the parents are like, I didn't even know you were sick. And, and his response is, you didn't know. And immediately, we know that this is something that Joker's had to deal with a lot. Is the people, people and judging him for his role. It's something, it's something that he's had to deal with a lot. It's something that irritates him. And we know that just by the way he snaps at, at the at Commander Shepard. And we know he and we know he's not like genuinely just an ass to everyone because he stops when you when you say that you didn't know. It's like exactly when he realizes that he fucked up, he stops. And these are this is a, it's a very small bit of characterization that is very well done, and it comes and it reads well because we can tell these things about his character based on the way he reacts. He doesn't have to say, I'm insecure about my ability to do my job or about how other people's perceptions of my ability to do my job are because he can tell it just by reacting like a normal person does. Um, Basically, what we're saying is we get to know the person exactly, and not the, this is who I am. Yeah, um, we, we learn organically, like you do in real conversations with real people. Which, I think, is another big flaw in his characterization. As opposed to the Steve, is the guy who's so awesome, look at me, I'm awesome, Duke Nukem character. Who's, they try to force, yeah, force him to be all that. So Duke Nukem's another interesting characterization. Duke Nukem is a caricature. He's always has been a caricature. Yeah. He is he is a parody of the macho bravadoism of the mid nineties American culture, muscle car culture, basically. Um, you know, sort of the in in order to be a man, you have to be big and manly and do manly things like have massive biceps and you know crush people's heads between your hands like beer cans and drink twelve pack without without stopping. And John St. John has a beautiful voice for and, this, and he does. And Duke Nukem is a caricature. Which, and he is so over the top that he's ridiculous. And it sort of says how ridiculous that idea is. The problem is... There's people who aren't joking. That when you take that caricature at face value, and like, oh, this is an, this is, this is an actual character. No, it's not an actual character. His name is Duke Nukem. Nukem, N-U-K apostrophe E-M. <laughs> okay? It's not... Meant to be a real person, which is a thing that... K-E, apostrophe E-M. Yeah, K-E, apostrophe E-M, that's right. Um, And his symbol is the nuclear warning sign. the nuclear warning sign. But the problem is, like, Gearhead, once they got got it, whoever they farmed it out to didn't realize that he's supposed to be a parody. Or if they did, they just took it way too wrong, far in the other direction. Because the problem is, when you start... When you parody something so hard, you become the thing you're parodying. You're no longer being a parody. Gaze too long into the abyss. The abyss shall gaze into you. Yes. 
It's like, I'm making a shitty video game to talk about shitty video games. Yeah, but you made a shitty video game. Yeah. <laughs> you just made another one of the problems. It's, it's something that I, 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 com- I, I commented on this earlier today on, on Twitter. It's like, it, if you're trying to make a cult classic, you're fundamentally, fundamentally misunderstanding cult classics. The reason these things are that way, the reason we love things that are stupid or bad or silly is because they're done with an earnesty and an honesty and a, and a love for what they're doing that they don't care that they're bad or silly or goofy. When you try to intentionally do that, it's hollow and fake. Kind of like all of those movies they're releasing, the scary movie, the epic yeah, movie like, they released. Like the first scary movie, or actually Scream, the, the Scream, the very, the first sort of parody of horror movies of slasher fix, was really good because they were it was it was from a place of love for slasher fix, mm-hmm. but talking about how stupid slasher fix can be. Then they saw it sold well and said, "Hey, why don't we just keep doing this?" And it stopped being from a place of love and it started being from a place of money. And when you go from a place of love to a place of money. You just I, 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 I always found Scary Movie weird because it's a parody of a parody. Yeah, like, Scary Movie is a parody of Scream, which is a parody of 90s, 90s 80s slasher fix. Um, thing is, people don't realize that Scream is supposed to be parody sometimes. No, they don't. Which, which is how you know they messed up. Well, I mean, that's why it's well, why it's considered a cult classic too. It's like it, it's it's actually a really good slasher fix. And Scream also makes the yeah. distinction that I that I always make between action and horror. In action, in horror, the protagonist can't do anything about the monster in its way. Yeah. In action, they shoot it in the face with a shotgun and run. Um, but anyway, so that's sort of derailing the topic a little bit. But characterization is very important, and it's something I really love in in in, in all media. Well, it's really genre characterization. Yeah. And if you do it good, you do it great, and it makes us love the game more. Um, a lot of games have been saved from mediocre gameplay by having characters that we love, characters that we enjoy. Um, Halo, I think one of the things that actually makes Halo a really popular game, in addition to the mechanics, has been Cortana. Because almost everybody really does enjoy Cortana as a character. and Cortana's really interesting. She's, 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 she's very interesting. She's a really strong character. And her relationship with, with John, with, with, uh, with, Chief. with Master Chief is a very interesting relationship. And it's sort of this weird, like, sort of diamond of characterization in the middle of this generic shooter. It's really it's really funny to see Master Chief because he's such a weird subversion on Steve. He's he faceless is. Steve, but he is a lot stronger than that because of his connection to Cortana, who is a very unique and strong character. Yeah, like, I think Cortana is the thing that keeps him from being Steve. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that he has this person to care about. And even more so that the person isn't actually a person, it's just a computer. Um, but he has this thing to care about and to worry about and to fight for. And that gives him a connection, and through it gives the players a connection to Cortana and makes her more important to the players. He's also really interesting aesthetically so. from a Steve. Yeah. Because he doesn't have a face. Well, he does have a he face. He does have a face, you never see it. You, see, a, you see his eyes at the end of Halo 4. It's, it's a baby face. <laughs> he has a baby face, which is going in the books, but anyways... Um, so yeah, that there there are good ways and bad ways to do characterization. Bad ways is just to slap a stereotype over a thing, and a good way is to establish them as a person. And and they, can, they don't have to be an RPG. This can be like you know, in the, in well, the early '90s, there were plenty of good characters in platformers. Yeah, you know, that you could you could tell about a character from the little things. 
like one of the um, one of the really one of the one of the best characterized characters that I can think of from the you know late nineties, early two thousands is like the prince and the Prince of Persia games. <laughs> That character I love so much. You can. He goes through so much shit. He goes through so much shit. But you can, like, as you watch his, as you watch his growth and his change through the three games, the original, the Sands of Time. And Yuri Lewenthal does an amazing job. He does. Um, His character grows and changes so very much, and. It's 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 a very good example of characterization. If you haven't played the Sands of Time trilogy, go watch somebody play them or go play them yourselves. Because uh, I, you know, the game is sort of meh at times, but the characters in that game are very good for the most part. There's a couple of pieces where they drop it, but anyways. Uh, so moving on from characterization, Shadow Chorus wants to talk about. Other things that can that can sometimes relate to characterization, but not 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 quite. Oh yeah, like there there is a fundamental rule of storytelling, is that every story exists to tell a lesson, to to teach someone something about the world or about themselves or about you know a, a, a lesson to tell, a moral lesson. And it doesn't have to be like tortoise and the hare obvious. It yeah, doesn't have to be like a fable obvious. Some of them. Some of them are less obvious, some of them are more obvious. Some of them are less good of a lesson. Like, the, the, le- the, lesson, that, the lesson that Fable 3 tells is apparently that leadership runs in the blood. <laughs> leadership <laughs> is uh, genetic. Sometimes the lessons are clearly not the lesson that we, are not intentional, but they end up in there, and you're like, uh... I think that, uh, I, I, I actually think that the, the lesson Fable 3 was trying to tell was the opposite of that. Was because if you think about it, all the decisions that are being made as a part of your kingdom aren't being made by you. Mm-hmm. They're being made by your advisors. You're not actually doing anything you're not told to do. But they all listen to you. They don't really. The blood. I think, I, I think, the actu- I think one of the actual stories being told that that's being missed is how ineffectual you are as a king. <laughs> how ineffectual nobility that, actually is. That's, that's, one, that's <laughs> one that you can find, but the one that is being hammered into your face... That, that, yeah, that's fair. It's, well, it's, 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 it's back to that Duke Dukem thing. We're trying so hard to tell a story that we accidentally told the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we were trying so hard to teach you this lesson, we messed up. Um, and so, there, there's a lot of different ways to teach a lesson. And I think, yeah, this is that tie into characterization. One of the easiest ways to teach a moral lesson that is actually good and very effective is to make a good character based around that lesson. And oftentimes it's the tragic flaw. Yeah. Which is the, the, the Greek method. Tragic heroes with this flaw and you learn, oh, that was a bad flaw. Sometimes, though, you play God of War, and that flaw is so terrible, and that lesson is so hammered. Ooh, rage, anger, vengeance, forgiveness, forgiveness. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, that was that's that's an example of bad characterization and moral lesson. It's a very bad moral lesson because, because it's telling the moral lesson by literally in the last five seconds having a face show up and be like, this is the moral lesson. Forgiveness is what we're telling you. Like Forget the, the entire game. Literally, the end of God of War 3, Athena pops her face up and tells you to forgive Zeus. Why? Because that's the lesson we're going for today. Except right afterwards, you, you forgive don't. Zeus by pummeling his face with your forgiveness, and he dies. His Kill face. you with forgiveness. <laughs> you pummel his face in in second person. Yes, because you pummel his face from the perspective of Zeus. 
So you control you control Kratos punching Zeus in the face, but you are actually Zeus's face. I think that's more subliminal. I think it's more subliminal messaging, saying that the game actually hates its players because it's punching its players in the face. <laughs> I think that it's the bad game, and we need to move off that topic. But something something that I really like. Especially that's played very well in Mass Effect is the moral lessons are the characters. Jeff Moreau is a moral lesson in getting beyond your your disabilities. Yes. He he is a lesson that no matter how physically incapable or how physically disabled you are, you can succeed. You even can in, do well. Even in a world like in a, in a world with with science so advanced, they should theoretically be able to give him ways of moving around without having to rely on his legs. He's still successful. With uh, and for, for those of you who don't know, Jeff Moreau Joker in it suffers from Vrolic syndrome, which in Mass Effect is a brutal, it's basically brutal bone disease. It actually does exist. Does it? It, I it's, sure it's, 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 a, it's a degenerative bone disease that causes your bones to not properly mesh together from childhood. Yeah, and so basically his leg, the bones in his leg and legs are hollow, um, which is bad for humans because we're heavy. Um, and so his legs, when he if he tries to walk too fast and without support, he basically shatters his legs. Um, and it takes forever to heal back because they don't have the proper, you know, stuff. Um... And he becomes, and with this ability, without getting, with, with this disability, without getting any outside assistance from a mech suit or anything like that, he becomes the number one pilot in the Alliance forces in the human in, in humanity's navy. Pro tip: You don't need your legs to pilot. You don't. He, he doesn't. Yeah, he the, says it he himself. Says it. I don't. I don't fly with my feet, Commander. Uh, I don't fly with my feet, Commander. <laughs> I do have to be careful when I go up to take a piss. That's 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 his line. Um, and. So it's it, he 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 excels in fact without any assistance over his disability. And he's he's also he's a secondary moral lesson. This is one this is one of my favorite things about you can tell more than one story. You can tell more than one lesson. People, mm-hmm. forgiveness. Like, you don't have to have one lesson in your story. Him and Edie. Uh, him and Edie, and also that's three lessons. His his personality. You would think that someone who was so, you know, shat upon his whole life would be depressed. He just kind of takes it with a smile. He makes, he cracks jokes about it. He's like, you don't have to but that was actually, give in to your stress. That's actually a recent development, too. Because he wasn't like that prior. Um, he was very serious and dour in the Academy, and he talks about this in the game. And the reason he got his nickname was because he never made a joke. He never smiled. He never laughed. And his exact thing was, Laps, you know, grinning like an idiot doesn't get me anywhere. But he did mention <laughs> when, 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 when I was first in my class at flight school, guess who was grinning? Yeah. So. It's like. And then that, that, uh, yet a third moral lesson. He actually, um, he, he experienced his own little miniature character arc in through the second and third games uh, when the introduction of the artificial intelligence, Edie. And in the second game, he absolutely hates Edie. Completely. Until like near From, the end. Yeah, until very near the end. Because she's an artificial intelligence, which is bad. Um, and because not only that, she's a Cerberus artificial intelligence, which is even worse. And for and also, she helps control the ship. Which is his job. Um, so that's three reasons why he doesn't like Edie. At, by the end of the game, he's come to accept her as a companion, as a comrade. And then in the third game, 
they actually develop a romantic sort of a romantic interest with one another. Him and the ship's AI, which is interesting. <laughs> Uh, which is fascinating, not only fascinating, but it also tells a story of, of it, it sort of tells a love is blind story kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because these are two people that have nothing but their personalities with one another to, to, to be attracted to. Like, they, they, they can't just be on the surface because one is a robot, one is a cripple. Yeah, one is an AI and one is, one is an AI and one is human. They don't, they're not physically compatible. So the entirety of their relationship is, is based on... Their compatibility. Their, compa- their, 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 their personal their compatibility. <clears throat> and that they are, they, they are a good mesh for one another. You can't say he only <laughs> loves her for her body because she doesn't have one. She's an AI. She doesn't have one naturally. She does, she does get one. She does get a, a, like a, a mobile... It's a, still a metal. It's still a metallic body. Um, and... It's 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 a very touching sort of story about you know sort of love conquers all told in a very silly way, but it really does very get endearing way. It's yeah, it's certainly very endearing. That's a, so that's that's three moral lessons from one character. You can do better than one moral lesson per game, God of War. <laughs> I don't think we can qualify that as a moral lesson either. It's... <laughs> it was it was a moral lesson in the same way beating you with a hammer teaches you not to screw up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't screw up! Bam! Because <laughs> he screwed up, I hit you with the hammer again. It's effective, but not good. Not even effective. <laughs> not really. No, just sort of. God sort of War of is terrible. Breeds. Uh, I mean, it's effective at getting its message across because no, it tells it's not. It's terrible. It tells you what because its it tells is. you what its message is. But then it does nothing to enforce its method. I didn't say it was effective at enforcing it. Just it'd be kind, of, it'd be it kind of like me walking up to a child, whacking him in the head, and be like, "This is for being bad." And the child's like, "What did what I even did do?" I even you, do? It's like I'm not going to tell you. You just you were bad. Wow. <laughs> My moral lesson to you is: don't be bad. Smack. You don't tell them what bad is. You don't like. It's like yeah. just. Don't be bad. Gets, not, gets the point across, just not very... Just no, there is... You're not getting any point across. <laughs> you're, you're literally... You're just telling kid he's bad. That's all you've done. Pie in the face morality. Pie in the it's, face It's just morality. like, forgiveness is a thing you should do. How do I forgive? Forgiveness is a thing you should do. When do I forgive? Forgiveness is a thing you should do. Should I murder Zeus? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Forgiveness is a thing you should do. Forgive you. I forgive you. <laughs> Covered in blood three hours later. I forgive you. Anyway... But, that's a sketch. That's a sketch. You, you write can, that down. You can you you can give more than one moral lesson. You can tell a moral lesson very. You can tell a moral lesson without a hammer. Yes. Um. um speaking of ways to tell lessons and, and stories, um, a, a lot of what we're talking about is dialogue and characters. But there's another element that tells a lot of the story, and that is simply how things look. If you look at a game like Wind Waker versus a game like Twilight Princess, they're both Legend of Zelda games. They're both very stylized games. They're, but, they're, but they're both very stylized, and they're, they have a very different feel, despite the fact that, like in most Legend of Zelda games, you get a lot of the same items. Um, you do a lot of the same stuff. You do a lot of the same stuff. You meet you know similar type of people. But because of the graphical style, Twilight Princess... While it has humorous moments, is a much more dark and visually interesting game. Whereas Wind Waker is a much it's kind of bright and bright and happy, and it's just joyful to play. 
Um, it just feels... And Skyward Sword has sort of like the middle ground. Yeah. Between those two. It's, it's, it's sort of like the, a similar stylization to Twilight Princess, but the colorization is closer to yeah. Waker. And so it, it lets you really get into a world while still letting it do bright colors. Yeah. Um, and sometimes stylization is used to as, as a juxtaposition. You'll, you'll get um, games that are cartoony games that are bloody, gory, slasher beat-em-ups. And it yeah, or creates it, a form of... And stylization is another thing where you can where there are shortcuts you can take, and the shortcuts in stylization are a little bit more forgivable than shortcuts in characterization. Things like uh, Mirror's Edge, which is a game about a dystopian, uto- yeah, dystopian future society. Everything's white. Everything is pure white. Like they run the janitor, they like they run their janitors into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is pure white. But the and path you need to take is a vibrant red. It's a vibrant red. Um, and mm-hmm. so they use colorization not only to direct you in how you go, but also to characterize the city, because you sort of you sort of experience the grime underneath the shine. Um, and it's it's sort of a this this shiny utopia is not what it appears to be. And the shorthand of doing that is everything is white and clean. In a, in a New York style city where having been having worked in downtown Atlanta before, there's no way you could get downtown Atlanta no. white and clean. <laughs> like you would have to power wash every inch of the sidewalk every for night. two years just to get the grime up, and then every night to keep it from coming back. <laughs> every night you have to walk pressure wash it for two years. Yes, that's impressive. <laughs> Some time machine work. Um, but yeah, and. It's, in my opinion, it's one of the things I don't like about some of the, they the have hyper services in that city. A, a like lot of the buildings the, keep themselves clean. They're just like <laughs> a lot of the hyper realistic games nowadays. Everyone loves those, but um, they end up. We've, we've talked about it before. When you stylize a game, you get the exact look you're going for, and it, it ages better. Yeah. Um, Versus if you're just trying to like use the newest technology, when that technology advances, it looks like crap. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I think also stylization gives you a lot more control over your storytelling because you you have you know the limits of your style. It's not all right. Well, we're almost pixel perfect to real life, but we can't quite do this. We can't quite do that. Whereas stylization, we can do whatever we want to. We, we, we want we want to make this character two feet tall. That's fine. He doesn't need to be a normal human height. He's two feet tall and he's got a giant nose. You already know a bit about what this character should be because he's two foot tall and has a giant nose. Yeah. And so it, it, you know, got a good you, sense you, of smell. you get to you get to highlight things about people yeah. when when you're going for this stylistic sense. Like you can highlight what about them is important to them based on what their outfit looks like. Or if you want to talk about a game that does really good just physical appearance stylization, the Persona games, yeah, are great. You see Kanji, you know exactly exactly who, who Kanji is. is. They don't rely, and because all the characters are Japanese, there's no racial reliance. Yeah. It's all the stereotypes are sort of a social stereotype and they use those to comment on those social stereotypes because yeah. each character while falling into one of these stereotypes breaks has to through the course of the game break out of it yeah. in order to accept themselves in order to become more powerful in order to tell the story yada yada yada. But um, yeah, Kanji's a, a really great example. So is Chie. So is uh, Chie. Chie. Um, uh, Yukiko. Yukiko? Y- Yukiko is a more interesting one because her character is not one that's quite as heavily 
Her character is a very no. Her character is very Japanese. Yeah. All the other ones, all, all the other characters, we sort of can we can we can find a correlation to. She is very much Snow Princess. Yeah. Her name is Yukiko. She's very much a Japanese princess. Now, for those, sort of for those who have never character. played Persona games. Okay, so the Persona games are a series of games in in in, in a grander series called Shin Megami Tensei, uh, which is a Japanese game series published by the. Uh, published by Atlas, game publishing company. Part um, life sim, part JRPG. Yeah, part life sim, part JRPG. And, and they incorporate the two in seamlessly. a really interesting manner. Seamlessly. Um, because how you live your... So, it's Persona games specifically use the power of your will, your persona, the, the, side, the aspect of you that you present to the world as your power in-game, in battle and the combat system. And so the connections that you make and how you reinforce other people's views of themselves helps to make them grow not only as people but also as combatants. Um, your view of yourself directly influences your power in the game, or at least for the other characters. The main character, because the main character is you, the player, you sort of are a blank slate, but you're a blank slate in such a way that you, your actions influence everybody else. Who then in turn influence you. And I would like to say that that is the best way to do a quote-unquote Steve. Because your character is, at first, very much the Steve character. You you know, in Persona 4, you've just moved to an area. You know, ne- you never hear anything about the about the, um, your character's parents. A little bit, but not a you, lot. You get a little, but you never, you never <clears throat> know who they are. You, you have no connection. Do they, do they even care with you? Yeah. About you. But they do it in such a way that you forge all of your connections. And by the end of the game, you've got a character... With a very strong personality, with very strong feelings towards certain individuals and people, and very strong connections. The purpose of Steve is to break out of Stevedom. Yes, and that's that's actually what I was talking about with how they use stereotypes. They use that stereotype for the main character, and then over the course of the game, you break out of that stereotype. And by the end of the game, even though you've never said a word, you are one of the most richly detailed and characterized characters in the game simply through your interactions with everybody else you become either a really good big brother a really good best friend a really good nephew all of these none of these any combination of these and more through your actions in the game it's all up to you um and it's sort of and again like i said it it takes these there and and to reinforce that, you are very generic at the beginning. Uh, the main character, Persona 4, has gray hair, is, you know, tall, lean, average. He St- wears... Stereotypical Japanese anime school yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah. He, he wears... With, un, with unnatural hair. With well, unnatural it's, it's hair like color. light black. It's, it's black, but it's lighter color. Mm. Um, um, and and he, he, wears... he wears his uniform, but the school he wears it properly but not super straight he's yeah. not like yukiko it's not all perfectly buttoned up but he's not like yosuke where he's got the headphones and the the, yeah. the collar that's kind of and, and so that's where we go into the other characters so you so but, but, each we, character has their own little characterization their own little bits and pieces of the uniform that is different drastically sometimes sometimes less sometimes the character just wears a white t-shirt and a bullet on a necklace yeah that's kanji um and carries around a, a, a steel chair <laughs> Um, Wait, well, are we are we are we now playing Skullgirls? Yes. <laughs> His weapon of choice is literally a chair. Well, no, it changes. Sometimes it's a table. 
So what you're telling me is that Kanji is Beowulf straight out of Skullgirls. No, Kanji is John Cena. No, no Kanji <laughs> is the best. Kanji is the best. Um, but beyond just the characters, it's when you get into the... Because each character, um, you, you rescue them from this dream world, this fog, and which is run by the inverse of their personality because it's based off the tarot cards and every tarot has a regular <laughs> way... And a flipped version. It's also based off the Freudian psyche, um, in that we all have id and er, id and um, id, id ego super ego. Id ego super ego. You are the ego. Your persona is the super ego, and your shadow is your id. And you have to sort of strike a balance between the three of them. But they create these worlds that are drastically different from from all the other from each each world world to world. <coughs> Um, and they they use visual elements to tell you what what truly drives this person. And, and sometimes it's very interesting um, because for kanji, a, a lot of the elements are the Japanese stereotypes for gay men, um, highly muscled saunas, things like that. But it's never clear if kanji's actually homosexual. Um, it's it's it, it's a lot. It's up to the to the player to decide. It's never stated one way or another. It's simply that. By the way, can I say that I like the Japanese stereotype for homosexual men a lot better than the American stereotype <laughs> for homosexual men? Because well, at least the Japanese stereotype has a bit of respect in it. Because it's like this man is intimidating. This man is strong. Well, in the reason it is, it's like men like men, so they're going to look their best for other men. Yeah, um, and, and they they like the men's appearance, and since they are a man. They therefore will be the best looking man that they can possibly versus make. the Americans versus like the Western stereotype which of, is, of well, man, which is a feminine man. Which yeah. is like, well, that's, and, but that, that's, that's really awkward. Japanese culture, effeminate is very different because everyone's effeminate, <laughs> men and women in, Jap- in, in, in that particular culture. Um, but beyond that, they 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 use these stereotypes that that you make you would make you think, oh well, he's gay, and it's like no, he just has effeminate traits. And, that, and and he's afraid that, that he's afraid that that's the way people view him. In the Japanese version, they actually do confirm that he is. In the American version, they don't, which I think is actually better because it's not it's not stapling it down. In the American version, it, it's it's letting it be up to your up to your idea, up to you, and up to you know your, how you and, deal with. Content. And I like the idea that he's afraid that people will he he's afraid that people will view him as homosexual, even if he's not sure if he is or not, just because of his. Which is a very Actually, much not even that. It's unmanly. It's yeah. Specifically, his fear is that he's not manly yeah. because he likes to sell. That's the whole reason. Um, <laughs> but you know, each character has their their these worlds. Um, or uh, I forget her name, the detective girl um, who's cross dressing as a boy. Nauto. Nauto. Her entire dungeon is stylized after children's toys because her big fear is that. Everyone thinks she's playing detective because she's a girl in a male's field. And to clarify, in Japan, male-female roles are much more of a thing yeah. than they are in the U.S. Yeah, um, they're very strict. It's very strictly defined. And so she feels like by being a detective, she's which is always really impressive when the Japanese put out a story that is that is breaking their gender roles because their gender roles are so heavily ingrained in their society. It's always really impressive to see them break it yeah. out. Um, but yeah, she, she's basically, she feels like she's playing detective because I'm not a, a boy, I mean, I'm not a man, I'm not supposed to be doing this, I'm just playing because this is what I what I like doing. And so 
everything is, you know, e- even her persona is like a robot transformer thing. Well, her persona is actually it's it's like sort of the the duality that she's facing, where half of the half of the persona is a male version of her, and the other half is a robot, mm-hmm. and it's like it sort of fights with her. It's a little half mad scientist, half plaything. Uh, ironically, she's probably the least played around because she just straight shoots people. Yeah, she has a gun. She has a gun because, oh yeah, she is a police detective. She actually is a detective. And she just shoots people, and her persona powers are darkness, which means that when her power works, she auto-kills. Dark and light. Dark and light. She, yeah. uh, her persona her persona plays in that duality as well, of both, both so, dark and light. Of, uh, ironically, of all the characters, she's the least playing around. Yeah. Um, she's the most serious. And, and that's part of how they that's part of how they do that. They, they, they use that heavy juxtaposition to characterize... These yeah. characters and to characterize their struggles, um, it's very it's it's very well it's it's a story well told and I will probably stream it before Persona Five comes out. Um, so look forward to that. The future it, it will take that. a long time, by the way. That is not a short game. Um, no, it's not a short game. Um, but yeah, so there's there's lots of interesting things. Moving from that, because we didn't have a transition topic, so we're doing what's called a crowbar transition. Uh, you can probably leave early. Uh, We'll probably just, you can leave when you need to leave. Do you leave now? I need to leave now. It's 12.15. Right. Units is leaving, so the remaining of the podcast will just be me and Shadow Course. Yo. I'm using your bathroom first, though. Okay. Anyways. So, again, crowbar transition. Going into our second topic, which is stories as told in a tabletop setting. Um, tabletop games, again, like as we've talked about before, when we, when we say tabletop, we're referring to all games that are played on a tabletop. That's pen and paper RPGs, that's board games, that's card games, that's dice games, you know, everything from everything from chess to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and one of the things that I find particularly interesting in tabletop storytelling is that the mechanics have to tell a large portion of the story. Or at least some of it. Like it if you're if you're playing a game about like uh, you know, knights, knights and warriors, and then you're just like handing off little small things in like a in like a trading factory. It's like this is a bit of a clash. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and so the, the the mechanics play a large part of your storytelling because that's how you're interacting with the world. You're not interacting like in video games. You don't have an avatar that's doing things on a screen, or in pen and paper games, you don't have a character sheet that's telling you what you're doing. Um, the mechanic the mechanics are important. Things like uh, links to mind. Things like settlers of Catan. What tells the story of Catan are you placing and building your bases and roads, um, which you know tells how of of this group of people populating this island. Goodbye, units. Kingdom Death Monster. Kingdom Death Monster. Meow. He'll be back, folks. Anyways, not not by the end of the podcast, unfortunately. Uh, Anyways, we'll probably figure this one out. Yeah, we will. Um, the, the, the mechanics of Catan tell the story of Catan, which is this group of people settling this island. It's a fairly simple story, but that's how you relay it. And, you know, the winner is the person who populates the island the best or the most. The games like Ticket to Ride tell the story through the game pieces. Monopoly tells, albeit a very limited story... Through the play, 
let's through the cards. Let, let, the let's score. be fair though, Monopoly was was made during the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it it was telling the story of escapism. It was telling the story of you know life sucks. Wouldn't it be great if you were a millionaire? Well, boom, Monopoly. Um, this is it's telling what your life would be like if you had this money. If if getting money was as easy as passing go. Um, Pass go. Here's two hundred bucks, which at the time was a lot of money. Um, and I find that very interesting because if you don't have a story to tell, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like the idea that you could buy Broadway for just like two hundred something dollars. Yeah, you know, I, if you don't have if you don't have a story to tell, it doesn't necessarily matter as long as your mechanics are good. But if you do have a story to tell, your mechanics have to be good. Uh, or your mechanics have to at least fit the story. Yeah, like um, Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep tells the story of the Lords of Waterdeep fighting for control of Waterdeep. Fairly simple. But it does this by making you, the player, the lord. And so it's very—it's actually a very simple mechanic for how geniusly it, it does, it, how geniusly it sets up the story. Your lord, you get them at the beginning of the game, and you flip them up, you, you, you look at them yourself, nobody else sees it. And it tells you what your lord is after. So let's say you have the paladin, whose name I can't think of right now. The one who looks ugly as hell. But yeah, the, 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 the paladin. He, he, his objectives are to you know, support his religion and to defeat his enemies. So he wants you to do religion and war quests. Those are the two quests that he does, that he rewards you for doing. That characterizes his character right there. You know what he's about. He's about religion and war. He's about, he's about dealing with monsters and protecting the city and spreading the word of his particular divine being or of the, the various gods that his, he and his allies serve. Um, I think he's Tyr. I think he's a, a paladin of Tyr. I think, something like Tyr that. Tyr or Torm. Um, the twin gods. <laughs> one of the two. And so, throughout the game, you collect and play quests that help with that. And your agents that you place down help you progress towards that goal. It's a very simple story, but all of the mechanics support it. Uh, things like Red Dragon Inn. Oh, yeah. Tells a very simple story. The story is you are a group of adventurers. You're, here, you're, here, you're here to have. You're here to get drunk and steal each other's money. You're here to sit down and have a good time. And the cards that you play tell the story. The mechanics of the game tell the story. In that you start off with uh, you start off with a, your your deck of cards in your hands, and you start off with one drink, and you start off with an amount of gold. And then as you go through, as you progress through the playing, the action phase, the betting phase, and the drinking phase, and then the start of the round again, that story progresses. And it gets progressively and progressively sillier and wackier, and more fun as it goes. All through the mechanics. The entire, that entire game is told through its mechanics. Every aspect of it. And that's very important. Now there are aspects, there are times when that goes bad. Um, things like Life is one that comes to mind immediately. <laughs> game of life is random chance. Yeah, the, the, roll a spinner. The game of life is 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 like no matter what you do, you will get shit on by chance, which is kind of telling a story, yes, but the mechanics are not fun. <laughs> it's like Lords of Waterdeep would have been a really weird game if you were. This is a game about the Lords of Waterdeep fighting for control of the city. Go play one of their minions going through a dungeon. 
Yeah, it would have been very. It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have worked that way if it was more like its 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 sort of title owner. What do you think? What what, what do you think about mechanics? Is there any, anything in particular you'd like to point out? Kingdom Death Monster. <laughs> <laughs> Kingdom Death Monster story King, King, is the mechanics. Kingdom Death Monster tells story the same way that Dark Souls tells story through through the mechanics and through the world. And yeah. speaking of worlds, um, world to me. I don't know if any of you have picked up on this, is very important. The world that you immerse yourselves in is a lot of what grabs me in a, in a system. The setting is what grabs me. Um, like, Shadowrun, I'm kind of iffy on, because I, I kind of like it, but it feels too same to me, because it is just the world. It, it is Earth, with, you know, some magic thrown in, but it's Earth. I mean... And all the nations carved up into different nations. But yeah, but it, it's not marginally different. Yeah, it's it's largely just st- <coughs> yeah. it's, it's Earth near future. Um, <laughs> near future, hook a left. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll know it by the neon lights. <laughs> but then there are settings like Lords of Waterdeep, which is welcome to this fantastic waterfront city. That is constantly set upon by tragedy after monster after calamity. It's it, if bad things happen in Faerun, they happen at Waterdeep. Now you know why uh, I have a setting where you play the Waterdovian guards. Yeah, <laughs> Waterdavians. Uh, yeah, the it, it's Waterdeep is very interesting because it, it is one city. It's one massive city. First like, off, there there are two places in Faerun where bad things happen. And those are Waterdeep and Neverwinter. <laughs> Icewind Dale. Icewind Dale is like a continent. Not, not as much happens in Icewind Dale as happens in Waterdeep and Neverwinter. A lot of stuff happens in Icewind Dale. It does. The Crystal Shard happened in Icewind Dale twice. <laughs> Barbarian invasions. Drow invasions. Barbarian invasions. Drow invasions. Dwarven battlefields. Dragons. <laughs> dragons. Demons. Lots of stuff happens in Icewind Dale. There, there's, there's two cities and, and one region. <laughs> All the favorite is just not good. Yeah, yeah. Things happen in favor. There's also the Rashimon. Uh, the Rashimi Isles. <laughs> that's not Faerun, though. That's, it, off, that's off the coast of Faerun. Off the coast. Sword Coast. The Sword Coast. It's like, there, there, the sword there, coast. there's... Like, and Faerun, as a world, is very interesting because it's where things happen. It's where things happen. It's, 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 that, old, it's that old adage of, you know, show me the most interesting point in your story. It's so, like Faerun. Faerun is a very interesting place to be. Anytime. <laughs> Anytime you want, things happen. Anytime, anywhere, in Faerun, go. Um, but worlds are very important to me because they're a place that I can immerse myself in. I can tell my story in this world. Um, it's why I love Azeroth, because Azeroth is a world of very strong characters and strong story that you can plant your character into and go. Yeah. Um, and then, like, in Tabletop, Red Dragon Inn. Red Dragon Inn is a very interesting world. The world is very narrow. It's the Red Dragon Inn. Welcome to the inn. Have fun. <laughs> Welcome to the inn. There's nothing else in existence. We are the last survivors of humanity. <laughs> um, they, they tell a little bit of the world outside of the inn through their little snippets about the characters, but a lot of the, a lot of the world is the inn, and the inn always has the constants of the barmaid and the drinks and the characters. Yep. No barman. There's actually no bartender. There, there's no bartender. Actually, there is a bartender, but he's never introduced in the cards. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a red-haired dwarf. Uh, very interesting. People, 
There's a lot of speculation on whether or not he is the dragon that Red Dragon is referring to. <laughs> Might be a dragon. Maybe a dragon. Um, uh, but there's all of this strong character, like, and this goes back to characterization as well. It's all of the characters have their own feel in the world. Each character is unique and has their own style. They're yeah. all very special, very, 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 very different. Yeah, because how your character interacts with the world is part of what makes up characterization. I'm thinking of, like, if we go to The Last of Us, how Joel reacts to the world informs who Joel is. Yeah. You know? But then, back in Tabletop, Red Dragon Inn, all of the characters have their own style, their own world, and subsequently, their own deck style. They're all, all of their decks play a different way in, in regards to how they win the game. Yep. Some of them steal all your money in the name of the thief, and uh, some of them help people in the name of the priest and the paladin. Uh, some of them just hit everybody in the form of Gog, the half-ogre. And the paladin. And the paladin. <laughs> um, and the wizards. <laughs> and Pookie. Pookie's, uh, Pookie's a strange one. Um, you know, like, they all... They all have different ways of approaching the game. Yeah. Because all of their characters are so different and so unique. I'm really excited for a couple of new ones that are coming up. Um, there's a, there's Goblin Indiana Jones. Pardon me? I'm serious. I'm forgetting his name, but he's a, he's a goblin archaeologist. And he's Indiana Jones. Those are words I've never thought would be put together. <laughs> uh, he's, he's really interesting. And then... And there's Wrench, the Cobalt Tinker. Yeah. Uh, but, like, it, there's, there's a lot of world in tabletop games. Like, immersing yourself in the world is part of the fun, both in pen and paper tabletop games and in, you know, traditional Kingdom, sit down and have a round. Kingdom Death Monster. Kingdom Death Monster is a very strong world that is very, very closely tied to the mechanics. Yeah, but let's say both mechanics and world play a part in the, in the storytelling of Kingdom Death Monster because... Um, the world is blackness, is darkness, is is nothing but monsters that want to eat you and eviscerate you. Um, and people that have not come to consciousness, yes, and are, and, and are just faces in the ground. And all the mechanics are, you know, so that it's a deck stacked against you and you have to figure out, you have to strategize with your allies and figure out how to survive and rebuild your society or build your society. Um, and, you know, learn how to talk, learn how to write, learn how to read, learn how to forge weapons. Civilization on the tabletop. Yeah. Um, and the mechanics reflect the story of how bleak it is, because at any point in time, if you do anything wrong, your entire party can get wiped out by one beast and you start all over again. Um, it's, it, it's a sort of sense of hopelessness. And and this bleak despair, and then this amazing catharsis when you win. Yeah, and then you win, and all of a sudden it was all worth it. Everything was worth the struggle because you won. Welcome to Dark Souls. Yeah, welcome to Dark Souls. Um, so yeah, and so the thing that that Eunice wanted to talk about, um, which we'll continue on, is crowdsourcing or group storytelling cra- yeah crowdsourcing in the form of storytelling not in the, not in the form of, of funding funding uh, specifically a thing that I enjoy with like the game Call of Cthulhu or any storyteller game um, where the story is crafted as you play what was, what was the name Dread Dread does that Dread does that very well um, and there's, there's a few other games and 
Betrayal at the House on the Hill does that very well. Where, <clears throat> so uh, the example that I'm using is called Cthulhu. The actions that your investigators take, so let me backtrace a little bit. Call of Cthulhu is a horror role-playing game in which you play in a Lovecraftian universe where Lovecraftian horrors are doing Lovecraftian things to you <laughs> and to people that you know or care about or to the society around you as a whole. And your job is to investigate these these things and try to put a stop to them somehow, somehow some way. Uh, and the story, oftentimes, because it's a storyteller camp, a storyteller system, is designed to sort of naturally grow as your investigators do things. Shadowrun has aspects of this too, um, where you give them you give them an objective, say, okay. You need to discover there are there are people going missing and you need to find out why. That's what the GM does. Yeah. Now the player says, "Okay, well I'm going to go talk to people. Okay, who are you going to go talk to? Uh, I'm going to go talk to the sheriff. Okay, you find the sheriff. GM very quickly pulls out a list of names. You find Sheriff Fester Shinetop. Um, <laughs> just to, to make a Monkey Ryle reference. Um, you find you find Sheriff Fester Shinetop." Uh, what do you want to talk to him about? I want to ask him about people that have gone missing. Okay, well, he says that Mary, Sue, John, and Bob have all gone missing in the past three weeks. And and so the the, the, the story... Well, four people or three people? Mary, Sue, John, and Bob. Mary, Sue, John, and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you decide. Um, have all gone missing in the past three weeks. And, 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 and it grows from there. Their actions determine the information that they get, which determines how the story travels. Um, one of the games that we played, uh, Inspectors, was a was a uh, it was a game that we played on on uh, Invalidron, which also progressed in a very similar way. The storyteller had an end point and a beginning point, and we filled in the middle as we went. And our dice rolls determined whether or not what we thought was happening actually was what happening. And very often, I think almost every time, we actually determined what the big baddie would be based on our rolls. Um, as opposed to the GM already knowing what the big baddie is at the beginning. Which I find to be fascinating. It not only is fascinating, it also gives the players a bit of ownership over the story. Because it's, no it's no longer sort of an impersonal... And this goes back to my method of storytelling, where I, I like to tell narrowly focused on the character's stories. It's no longer an impersonal story about a big, unforgiving world. It's now a very personal story about your characters and your characters' decisions that have changed the way the story progressed. That's why I, I like to take a big world and then bring the characters into it to like make them part of the world so that their decisions do affect things. They they do change the world and they do affect them they do affect the world around them through their decisions and they have sort of a stake in the world because their character is part of it. They now have a tie to the world. Yeah. They now have a history with it. Which is why I like to t sit down and do backgrounds with people and give them all unique things that relate them to the world. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's lots of <clears throat> lots of interesting things. Um, I'm trying to think of a, another another game that I played that was very similar to Inspectors, and I can't think of Fiasco. Fiasco does that. Fiasco is more like a more of like an acting game though than anything else because it's it's very much Im you improv a scene with it, with with each other and the people playing with you determine who gets the benefit or who gets the negative impact of that scene. 
And that's a game, that's an instance of a game where it is entirely built, the story of the game is entirely built by the players, not by the mechanics at all. Um, in fact, the mechanics are saying, hey, you build a story, which is kind of lazy uh, because it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those hit or, it's one of those hit or miss things. Um, that depends on your depends on who you're playing with and whether or not the story will be any Yeah, good. yeah. It's like if you're playing with a bunch of actors, then you're going to have a good story. If you're playing with a bunch of people who like to play board games and don't like to tell stories themselves, then you're not you're going to have a very awkwardly told and uncomfortable story, and no one's going to be really happy with it. Um, so that that one's that one's more hit or miss, and that that is an example of mechanics not holding up a story because there's no story without the players in that case. The mechanics don't tell a story. They just give you a method to tell a story. Um, which is part of why I don't, I, don't, I don't like games like Fiasco all that much. Because there's nothing to reinforce the, the, the story. <laughs> like, it, it, the story can be whatever you want it to be. And it can happen however you want it to happen. Which and it can star you, you, whoever you, you want to star. Which is, which is when you, you get situations of, like people not agreeing on what kind of story they want to tell and it gets this very tone deaf kind of interaction yeah you know it, it's 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 that idea of when you have a million options you can only think of you know you can't think of three right yeah <laughs> um like you have a, here's a million here's a million different ways to play this game i can't think of anything when you have when you have too many options you can't pick one yeah it's like what are, i i have run into the situation with, with my friends all the time what are we gonna play I got no fucking clue. Let's play a game. I, what, what game? Shit. <laughs> what game? I don't know. I just want to play a game. Uh, so, you know, scarcity scarcity uh, in mechanics is, is an issue. Um, but, yeah. I think, that's, I, think that's, I think that's a good amount of time we've spent talking about story. Uh, if you have any sort of... Uh, you know things that you'd like to tell us about your opinions on storytelling or games that you really like for for any reason that we've talked about or a reason you'd like to talk about please feel free to send us an email uh, on the subject to finalshowfilms at gmail.com uh as we close out we're just gonna close out with some some more some final show news which has become a regular segment now since we've started actually writing down our show notes um first off i want to say thank you very much to jessica shea who put us to the hundred dollars a month mark on the Patreon? So yay, Jessica Shea! We're gonna clap now, very softly. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, that puts us at the funding for our second milestone goal, which is the units cooking show. Uh, Have we decided it's called units you cooks? I don't know if we've decided on anything yet, but we've certainly decided that we're going to be doing it. So because we said we were, yep. um, we are we are currently in pre-production for that show. Uh, we still have a couple other secret projects, but we can let you know that one of the secret projects we were working on was a pilot for that show, which now is just going to be the first episode. So, yeah. uh, so thank you all very much for your support on that. Also, a shout-out to David Pay and Chris Comfort for being at our supporter tier that lets us that has us uh, credit you and all of our stuff. So thank you very much to the three of you. And to everybody else who has supported What happens if we get like time. hundreds of people at that tier? Then we're going to have a long list of people to read. <laughs> I actually never said that I'd put it in the podcast. I'm only doing it... Uh, because we have be- only a handful Because there's only a handful. At that point, we'll say thank you, everyone. Uh, go look at our credits on our video, which will be like three minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> name after name after name after name. Yeah. 
But hey, if we get to that point, that's a problem I'm willing to solve. It's like, I, I, I will deal with having too many people giving us a lot of money. <laughs> I will. That is a problem I'm willing to solve when it comes up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thank you all very much for that. We are, like I said, we are in pre-production for Units Cooking Show, and I hope you guys will enjoy it when we get that out. Next week is the week of Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. So look forward to a lot of Halloween-themed content coming from us here at Final Show Films. We've got two Halloween-themed Two Guys, One Camera that we're going to be putting out. Uh, all of the streams will be replaced with Halloween-themed games instead of the whatever games we're, going, we're doing normally. On Halloween, that is. Uh, for, the Halloween, for the Halloween stuff. So, like, you know, throughout the week I'm going to be playing Dying Light. On uh, on in since Taco Shenanigans slot, and we'll see what else we want to do uh, for Bloodbath and and Point and Dodge uh, But it'll be a, it'll be a Halloween themed week, and we're going to have a Halloween themed podcast. Uh, so look forward to the Halloween Spooky episode of the Shenanigans podcast. Spooky cast, and we are going to have a Halloween themed actual play with Call of Cthulhu. So look forward to that. Uh, we were going to be actually putting that out. It'll probably be put out late on Monday uh, next week, but it will be going out Monday. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I've got to say. Is there anything you'd like to you'd like to put out there, Shadow Chorus? He's got nothing. All right, uh, so thank you all very much for supporting us, and look forward to the rest of the content we put out this week. Again, if you like every, if you like what you've heard so far and you'd like to hear more, you can follow us here at sinstaku.podbean.com. You can also find out all the stuff that we do at at uh, sorry, finalshowfilms.com. I was going to do something else, and I don't know what I was going to do. But anyways, you can find everything else that we do at www.finalshowfilms.com, and you can email us for any comments, questions, or concerns at finalshowfilms at gmail.com. Patreon.com slash FSFilms? Yes, also Patreon.com slash FSFilms is some place you can go if you'd like to donate money. We are professionals. We have this all written on the wall. Anyways, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all have a good day. Say goodbye, Shadow Course. Bye. Goodbye. And for Austin, meow. Yeah.